a pastor who went for his annual opportunity to give blood at a local bloodmobile, and the uh, uh, nurse there was asking him some questions to see if he needed to be eliminated from consideration. And she asked, uh, finally, the final question, and that was, are you in a hazardous line of work? And he said, yes. And she said, what do you do? And he said, I'm a pastor. You know something, if you, if you walk with God in any capacity, you could answer the same. I, I don't know if you're aware or not, but uh, most pastors do not retire from ministry at 65. Most of them get wiped out. Two out of every 25, only two out of every 25 seminary graduates makes it to retirement for ministry. The other 23 are wiped out before they ever reach that. It's that difficult. I got to contemplating that, and I've known that for more than 25 years, but um, I got to contemplating that oftentimes that's the case when it comes to not just pastors, but ordinary Christians as well. Uh, oftentimes those who start with Christ as children or teenagers or young adults don't make it to faithfulness when they're 65 years old. Many just get wiped out. I think Hebrews 12 is going to help us with that this morning. So let me say, if you know of a pastor that made it faithfully to retirement at age 65, and of course none of them really actually retire, but if they make it there, or if you know a Christian that is still walking with God and following Christ, by the time they reach 65, you have an enormous treasure. Enormous treasure. And that's why we like all of our people together in worship in a place like this, and we don't segregate everyone during worship, at least not radically, uh, by age, because we want those who are younger to experience those who are older. We want those who are older to pour into those that are younger. And Hebrews 12 is going to help us with that. Now, I'm preaching this because I realize that today there are people that are struggling with being faithful to Christ and enduring in their faith. They've got the idea that there is so much opposition in the world to the Christian faith, which among ordinary people there really isn't, but in the centers of power, it can be so unpopular to be a faithful follower of Christ, it actually discourages you. And then some of you are saying, I've tried so often and tried so hard, and I keep failing. And I'm wondering, will this thing ever work? So I'm concerned about those. Then I'm also concerned about how we start our day. How we start our day will determine whether or not we endure with Christ. And then the third thing I'm concerned about, of course, is the Lord's Supper today. When we come to the Lord's table, we've got to come with a clear conscience, having judged ourselves and made ourselves by the grace of God uh, on right terms with God by faith. And Hebrews 12 is going to help us uh, with that. Again, there are some that are crying out today, I'm so tired of failing. What you may not understand is that God has arranged the Christian life to where there's grace, an abundant grace, because the Christian life is going from one series of failures and restarts to the next. And if that's your experience, don't be surprised. Winston Churchill said that success is nothing more than running from one failure to the next with undiminished enthusiasm. And really, that, that is the key to success. Uh, Churchill had a great life and a lot of impact after World War II, but did you know the year after World War II ended, the Brits voted him out of office? And then he went on and lived a powerful life and uh, returned to power later on, running from one failure to the next with undiminished enthusiasm. And if you can grasp that, you will find 
victory in your life in enduring with Jesus Christ. Now, in this text, Luke instructed the Hebrews to trust God enough to endure, beginning in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, that phrase there is the primary statement in the text. It's modified by some participles that we will make the divisions of the sermon this morning, but that's the primary thing there. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not resisted yet to bloodshed, striving against sin. You can run this race in a long direction, in the same direction for a long way, if you will build your faith to endure. Now, how can I do that? Well, the text mentions three things. One is listen. Listen to heroes in the past who have run long in the same direction. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now that refers back to Hebrews 11, to such people as Abel, and to Abraham, and to Sarah, and to Joseph, and to Moses, and to Rahab, and the others that are mentioned here. And so chapter 12 picks up on that and and imagines us on the floor of a coliseum, running a very long race, but the stands and the grandstands are filled with these heroes of the faith who are cheering us on, who have actually run the same direction in a long direction, have endured, have finished the race, and now they are witnessing to us, telling us, you can make it, you can endure, you can endure anything that I endure, because God comes through when we trust Him. And that's what we find in chapter 12, verse 1. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run in with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, one verse you'll want to be familiar with is Hebrews chapter 15, verse 4. Listen to it real carefully. For whatever things were written before, the Old Testament, for example, were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And that's the function of these stories. Um, They are to give us hope, and when we're weary and when we're discouraged, we listen to these. So we listen to them. Look, do you have a problem with patience and with God's timing? Well, look at Noah, who built the ark over more than a century, 120 years. And finally, God came through. If you're struggling with God's timing, look to Noah. Do, Do you have some family problems? Well, look at Joseph, whose brother simply couldn't stand him and whose dad favored him that created hostility in uh, his relationships in his family. Um, Do you have a difficult task in front of you? Well, listen to Moses, who had to stare down Pharaoh after being on the backside of the Midian desert for 40 years. And then do you have some regrets? Well, look at Rahab who was a prostitute, and yet God included her in the family tree of Jesus because she trusted the grace of God. Uh, Are you tempted to retaliate? Well, then look at King David, who had plenty of opportunities to do so, but did not. Listen to them. I remember a number of years ago, I had a Bible reading plan that involved reading 10 chapters of the Bible a day, and every day I would read Hebrews 11. That was part of the plan. 
Hebrews 11 became part of the steady diet, a daily thing to read through the Bible. So every day this Bible reading plan required reading the 11th chapter of Hebrews. I don't know if that's what you need to do, but I do know that consistently we need to listen to the heroes who have come before us. In other words, we have got to know the Word of God. And before we do, and before you observe the Lord's Supper, would you make a commitment to listening to these people by immersing yourself every day into the Word of God? So first, listen. But second, leave. There's some things to leave. Andrew Palau is the son of the international evangelist um, Luis Palau from Argentina. And Andrew admits that his father and his family and the churches where he was as a child and teenager were wonderful all the way through. But Andrew never bought into the Christian faith, and early on, he began to experiment with illegal drugs. And he began to run with the crowd that was patently anti-Christian. Things got so bad for Andrew that he was at a dance club in some uh, city someplace in the United States when someone came up to him and said, hey, you're a believer, aren't you? He thought, oh no, he's discovered I'm a Christian. What am I going to say? He's going to want to talk about the faith and I'm half drunk. What in the world am I going to do? He said, well, what do you mean? He said, you are a true follower, aren't you? He said, I don't know what you mean. He said, you are a follower of Satan, aren't you? The man did not mistake him for a Christian. The man mistook him for being a follower of Satan. That's how far Andrew had sunk. And Andrew was struggling with drugs. He was struggling with relationships. His life wasn't getting started. And and he was sabotaging his life left and right. And finally, somebody invited him to go to a Christian retreat up in the mountains of Oregon. And he decided to go. And he opened his heart to the Lord and he said, God, I've opened myself to all the garbage in the world. Why would I not open myself up to whatever you have for me? And I'd pose that question to anyone today. You've already opened yourself up to the lust and the priorities and the misdirection, the confusion, the misery of the world, and you keep chasing that as if it's going to work for you, even though in millenniums it hadn't worked for anybody else, but you're going to be the exception. Let me, let me ask you, if you've already opened yourself up to all the garbage of the world, isn't it time to open yourself up to this God who gives a son and sacrifice and in resurrection to all who will trust and believe? Now, in the ancient world, in races, many of the athletes would train with ankle weights and other weights around their wrists and other parts of their body. But right before they ran the race, they would drop those weights. And then they would often enter a stadium wearing long flowing robes and they would drop those robes and they would wear as light clothing and as light shoes as they possibly could to run the race. And that's what is in mind here in chapter 12, verse 1. Let us lay aside every weight. So every weight. Now these things are not necessarily wrong. They're good in their place, but they've got to stay in their place. It would be absolutely foolish for an ancient runner to run a lengthy race in competition, with ankle weights around his ankles. It would be silly to run with a robe. Now, at times, the weight can be fine in training, and the long-flowing robe is fine during opening ceremonies. But it is not wise, it's not advisable, it's not to the runner's advantage to keep these things on during the race. And that's true with many things that we face and many things in which we're involved. It's very, very possible for completely good or neutral things to get in our way of following Christ. 
I had one deacon in one church I served who um, illustrated this very well. He had season tickets to every home Alabama football game. And he would go and he would drive about three and a half hours from Phoenix City to Birmingham or Tuscaloosa, wherever the game was, and he would watch the game. And every time uh, the game was in the evening at night, he would go and he would drive all the way back to be in church Sunday morning. Andy Waldrop never missed a Sunday morning because he was out with a football game. Oh, how I wish all of God's people could learn that. God never permits us to miss worship because of a football game. And Andy knew that. I wish his tribe would increase. But he didn't let that become a weight in his life. Now, sometimes he would um, go to the game. Afterwards, he'd go to Dreamland Barbecue. He'd come back. He'd get home by 2 or 3 in the morning. But he was there every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. He didn't allow college football to become a weight. But then he goes on and says, um, lay aside every weight, set it aside, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now the notion of sin in some places in our culture is very laughable, as if there's such thing as a right and wrong universally. You know, I've got some things that are right and wrong for me, and you've got some things right and wrong for you, and they're not always the same. May I say to you, there's a good Greek word for all of that, baloney. Uh, The truth is, the notion of sin may be laughable to many in our culture. It's deadly serious to God. There is a standard of right and wrong, and God isn't bending for any human at all. He never will. He is a rock, and He is unchanging. It's only because of His grace that we are not consumed. This is a very serious issue to God. Now, how do I know if something is sinful or righteous? Well, three questions to ask. Number one, what does the Scripture say? This is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God, and it's as much in force today as it was when it was first uttered. And so we're to handle the Bible like Jesus did, and the Bible was His authority for His life. And so what does the Scripture say? Second, what about my conscience? The the Bible doesn't address everything in, in the world, of course, but what does the Scripture say? The Bible didn't imagine pornography, of course, okay? There was no such thing in the first century or previous centuries, but what does my conscience say? When I consider the Word, is, is this thing in the trajectory of righteousness or unrighteousness? And then third, what do my spiritual authorities say? For example, God has placed parents over children and teenagers, and uh, what, what, what do my parents want, for example? They are my spiritual authority. What is their counsel? What, is their, what are their wishes? What is their guidance? That's, those are just three real simple things that we can, um, uh, to which we can look to determine is something right or is something wrong. The problem so often with people enduring and staying with the faith and following Jesus consistently throughout all of their years is that oftentimes there are some things going on in secret that weaken us. And it's oftentimes not the public scandal, but the secret compromises that make it so difficult. Luis Palau, when his son Andrew was going through so much difficulty, self-imposed difficulty, he wrote to him a lengthy letter, and one statement in it really drives this point home. He said, Andrew, the secret to life is the secret life. What you do in secret is going to be either a help or a hindrance to your endurance with Jesus Christ. 
Oftentimes, if you get the secret life cleaned up and taken care of, God will come through with enormous power for the rest. But too often, we, we want to be on the edge of things. I remember in 1971, I was six years old, and I was sleeping in bed on the naval base at Point Magoo, California, and that terrible earthquake came through where 65 people in Southern California passed away. I felt the earthquake in my room, and it knocked me out of my bed. And the reason it knocked me out of my bed is that I stayed too close to the place where I got in. And too often, that's the case with us. We get into the Christian faith just far enough, but we stay on the edge, and when something trembles, we fall out in a way. The better thing is to get in the middle of it and not stay on the edge. George Sweeting tells a story about being at Niagara Falls one time, and he saw some chunks of ice and looked a little more carefully, and some fish had frozen in these chunks of ice. They were broken up, they were going over the falls, and these gulls were flying down and sinking their talons into these frozen fish and these chunks of ice, and they were eating and gorging themselves and then flying off. But one particular gull came and sunk his talons into the ice and began to eat, and he waited, and he waited as the falls approached, and he waited, and he waited, and he tried to fly off, but his talons were frozen into the ice. And he couldn't break loose, and he went over the edge. There are some of you that are real close to going over the edge. And this morning, God has graciously given you the opportunity to let go. To let go before it's too difficult. Let go before you or your family your life, or some other thing that's important to you faces ruin. And so before we take this Lord's Supper today, let go. Let go of anything that keeps you from Jesus Christ. Leave it aside. Let go of anything that undermines your endurance. Let go today and do it today. So listen and leave. But the third thing is to look. Look to Him who has run a long way in the same direction even Jesus Christ. Albert Einstein, it's told, was a passenger on a train one day, and he got into a conversation with a fellow sitting next to him, and he thought he might have a little fun with him. He said, look, if you can ask me a question that, uh, if I ask you a question that you can't answer, you give me $50. And if you ask me a question I cannot answer, I'll give you $500. The man said, well, great, I'll take that. And so uh, Einstein asked him, he said, all right, what's the distance between the earth and the moon? Well, the man reached into his pocket and gave him $50. Uh, the man asked him, he said, what goes up a mountain with three legs and comes down with four? Einstein reached into his pocket and gave him 500 And Einstein said, before I ask you my next question, let me ask you this question. What goes up a with three legs and comes down with four? The man reached into his pocket and gave him $50. <laughs> when Jesus Christ urges you on to follow God with endurance, He knows what He's talking about. He has personal experience with doing it, and the text points us to that. In verse number 2, look. Looking unto Jesus, fixating yourself daily and periodically on Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. Now, what are we to look at? 
Well, he's the author of our faith. And his relationship with a righteous life is the same relationship as an author to a book. An author determines what goes into the book. Jesus determines what it means to be faithful and to endure by faith in following God. Jesus is the author. Look at that. Look at the fact that he's Lord. Look at the fact that he's lovely in how he handles his lordship. Look at the fact that he's master. But, but he's not, so, not only the author, he's the finisher. He finished it, he completed it, and he did so perfectly, and there's not a better model anywhere in the world. Don't you just admire him for that? He, he never had to pray for himself, forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. He could pray the last part, but he didn't pray, have to pray the first part. He never sinned. He, he never said, oops. He never said, I didn't mean to do that. Look at that. Nobody does it like Jesus. He's the author, and he is the finisher. And then, look what it says uh, here. He, for joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus looked past the agony of the cross to the joy it would produce. And now today, he has two billion followers that magnify his name. He's had many more down through the centuries. He's coming again, and his father is building a kingdom for his name. There is joy set before him, and so he can endure a few hours on the cross. And then he went to the cross. He went to that execution place and that execution experience that was reserved for the worst of criminals. Look at that. Look at him on the cross. Look at his suffering and look at his sacrifice. And then look at the rest of the text. He endured the cross despising the shame. While he was on the cross, they attempted to shame him and he despised that. He did not hold other people's opinion when it was wrong in high esteem. They, they, they shamed him because he did the will of God by going to the cross and he dismissed it. He was not impressed. He was not impressed. He was not moved. He was not intimidated by opinions that departed from the will of God. He wasn't merely a people pleaser, but he sure did please a lot, didn't he? So he despised the shame. And it goes on to say, he is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's a priest and his work is done. Therefore, he gets to sit in the place of royalty, in the place of rule at the right hand of God. He is enjoying an enormous, indescribable reward. Look to him. Look at his glory. Look at his loveliness. Look how desirable he is. Set yourself and your affections and everything on Jesus. Now, Vance Havner said this. He said, Satan will go to any lengths to keep you from considering Jesus. He will have you obsess over your pet doctrine, Havner said, or yesterday's failures, or tomorrow's dreads, or surrounding circumstances, or your own weaknesses, anything but Jesus. And when he's done that, his work is largely done. Now, I have to admit to you that through my years in my adult life, which I guess my, my entire adult life, except for one year, has been spent in the ministry, I've been tempted to look someplace else. My ministry started with significant opposition from people important to me. I've had attempts to fire me for keeping the doors open to every person in the community regardless of their race or their station in life. I've had people outright lie about me, tell me one thing in the pastor's study and say something else outside. I had one lady get angry with me because I had a happy family. 
I know. I had one person fuss at me for what we named our oldest son. I've had people complain because in one pastorate, I would step off the platform during a greeting time and greet others. We had to make some changes and let some people go from a daycare in one church and husband of one of the women came and sat in the parking lot wanting to fight me. I had a whole family get upset with me because we told their son to quit breaking up someone's marriage with immorality. You know, they're the kind of people that if I walked on water this afternoon, they'd complain and say, what's wrong with him? Can he swim? You know people like that? And you've got them too. And I want to tell you, this happens far more often than we ever say. We don't whine and complain. We just pray and blow through it. But the source of my strength and the way I have kept myself after Jesus in the weak and halting way that I have is verse number three and four. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed. Well, no one's tried to kill me yet. Don't get any ideas, but no one has come after me that way like they did Jesus. And listen, if Jesus can suffer that, I can suffer this. It's a very small thing compared to what he dealt with. Sherry Michelle says often that she simply prays for the spiritual gift of forgetfulness. And that's good. Now, there were races in the ancient world that were very unique. There were the Olympian Games, there were the Asminian Games, there were others. And one particular race was something similar to a marathon, not quite a marathon, but runners would start with a lit torch, and the person who won the race was not necessarily the person who finished the race first. It was the person who finished the race first with their torch still lit. That is what made them a winner. Can I ask you, is your torch still lit? Is, are you aflame for Jesus? Are you lit for Him? Have you determined that all the days of your life are going to be aflame for Him? Do you start your morning lighting that flame for Him by immersing yourself into His presence? Are you aflame for His death as we come to the table? Before you come to the Lord's table today, before you partake of the Lord's Supper, get a fire. Let the Spirit of God light a flame for Him. Because He's worthy. He's exalted. He's lifted on high. There's nobody that compares to Him in His crucifixion, in His coronation, in His promised return, Jesus Christ is all in all. He's worthy of a people aflame for Him. He's worthy. And right now, we're going to give you the opportunity to do that. We're going to sing a song, and we're going to invite you to come and publicly pray with a staff member, make some kind of decision that will light your heart afire for Him.
where you'll commit yourself for the balance of your life to live for Him, where you'll unload some of the guilt because of His multiplied mercies and His great love for you. You can come. Maybe God wants you to become part of this church. We, we invite you to come as well. Would you quickly and quietly stand with me? And I'm going to pray, and we're going to ask God to do a neat work in your life as we respond appropriately to Him.